Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Maletzadeh. Public health and healthcare are topics that are at the forefront of everyone's mind right now as we continue to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic. Once again this week, I will be turning over the podcast to Professor Andrew Trees, who's the co-chair of the programming committee for the American Dream Reconsidered Conference, which will be held from November 1st to November 4th. In this week's episode, Andy will be interviewing co-dean Kelly Wentz-Hunter. Kelly will be moderating our November 3rd panel, Public Health and Healthcare in a Post-Pandemic World. Kelly will be talking with Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Professor of Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine and co-director of the Emory Center for AIDS Research. And... Dr. Ngozi Azike, Director of the State of Illinois Department of Public Health. Andy and Kelly chat about what COVID has revealed about our healthcare system, as well as wide variety of other topics, including aging, Kelly's travel to Tanzania, and the Chicago Bears, of course. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to And Justice for All. I'm Andrew Trees, one of the programming co-chairs for this year's American Dream Reconsidered Conference. President Malek today has kindly turned the podcast over to me to talk with some of the people involved in this year's conference, which will be held from November 1st through November 4th. In this week's episode, we are fortunate to have a chance to talk with Dean Kelly Wentz-Hunter. She'll be moderating our November 3rd panel, Public Health and Healthcare in a Post-Pandemic World. She's going to be talking with Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Professor of Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine and Co-Director of the Emory Center for AIDS Research, and Dr. Ngozi Ezeke, Director of the State of Illinois Department of Public Health. Professor Wentz Hunter is the Dean of the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy, as well as Professor of Biology. She's been at Roosevelt since 2006 and has taught an incredible range of courses, as well as publishing widely and advising countless students. Dean Wentz-Hunter, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on here. So I want to jump right in. When I was looking over your CV, I noticed you are a first-generation college student and then went on to get a PhD and become a professor, which is a pretty remarkable journey. So I was wondering, I know we have a lot of students who are first time in college themselves. If you could tell me a little bit about that and what sparked your academic zeal. So I guess you have to kind of start at the beginning and talk about a little bit where I came from. So I actually grew up in a small farming community in Illinois, and both of my parents grew up on farms, working farms. So my mother came from a working dairy farm, and my father grew up on a farm that his parents worked that they actually rented. And both of my parents ended up working in factories as their jobs. And neither one of them wanted that for my sister and I. 
They didn't want us to end up working in factories. They saw that the factory situation in the United States was not stable. And it was never a question when we were growing up that we weren't going to college, even though our parents never did. So it was really a question of not if we were going to college, but where we were going to go to college and what we were going to study. So that was never a question, simply because my parents were like, you're not going to work in a factory. I think, you know, it was more about where to go to college, how to get there, and what to do when we got there. That was more of the question, not so much of where you're going to go or where you're not going to go. Was that, since your uh, parents had not gone to college, was that hard to navigate at first? Or did it? Did you feel like pretty well prepared? And was it, what, what are the challenges when you kind of enter as the first, you know, generation of your family to do that? Not prepared at all. <laughs> um, it, it was difficult because my parents really didn't know anything about going to college. They didn't know anything about applying for financial aid. As my sister, my sister's only two years ahead of me in school. And as we both were getting ready to apply for college, my parents' marriage broke up. And so that added another layer of uncertainty and financial difficulty to our lives. And, you know, trying to navigate filling out financial aid forms, trying to figure out how much college was really going to cost and how to sign up for classes and what to look for in a college. Neither one of us really knew what we were doing. We kind of ended up at our colleges based more on what our friends were doing than Hmm. probably what we really wanted to do. And it all worked out in the end, but I don't know if knowing what I know now, you know, that would have been the choices that I would have made, but we did what we, what looked like the right decisions for us at the time. Even our school counselors, again, it was a, a small community where most people went to either the community college in the area or one of the closest four-year colleges like Northern Illinois, Mm -hmm. or everybody went to U of I because that's where people went. And there weren't really a lot of people that went other places. And and so you kind of followed people. I was going to go to University of Illinois. And at the last minute, my friend said, hey, I'm going to go visit this college, College of St. Francis in Joliet. You want to ride along? And I went there and I said, oh, I'm going to go to school here. And that's how I ended up at my college. But it's a lot like Roosevelt, right? It was small classes, a small college. And it was comfortable for me because I was used to being in, you know, smaller classrooms and that kind of atmosphere. So in the end, even though I had put down a deposit at U of I because that's where everybody was going, it was the right choice for me. So, but it was scary because you just didn't know what to do. You just kind of followed along with people, but it worked out. Well, I think, you know, for uh, almost either, regardless of your background, when you first come to college or first come to college, it can be sort of bewildering, right? There's so many choices about where to go, how to handle it, financial aid, when you get there, what you're supposed to sign up for questions about majors. So, what advice do you have for new students at Roosevelt about managing the difficulties, all the questions you have to face? You feel like you're making all these choices that are going to have lifelong repercussions. I think sometimes it can be stressful for students. I think the first advice that I would give is to not be afraid to ask the questions 
Hmm. And to understand that you're not supposed to have all the answers. I think for myself, I didn't want to ask questions because I felt like I was supposed to know the answers already. And to ask questions was going to out me that I didn't belong. Right. And so I think that they should just ask every question, even if it seems like they're supposed to know. And then the second piece of advice that I would give them is that the decisions that they're making right now aren't necessarily going to solidify the rest of their life and their career path. Mm -hmm. So many people get a, a degree in one thing and end up doing something else. And that is okay. Like you don't have to enter college and commit yourself to a lifelong career in X, right? Part of college is really exploring all the things you might be interested in and just getting a really solid liberal arts degree. I mean, that's why they're at Roosevelt. I got a liberal arts degree as well. And you really can explore so many different avenues and get that really solid foundation and get a good degree, learn a lot of things, and then take that forward and don't think that it has to like put you in a box where you can't go out and explore so many other things after you graduate. And so that would probably be my big advice for them. I, I think that's great advice. You know, I remember when I went to college and you run into some people who already have the whole life plan, right? They're like, I'm here at college. Then I go to med school. Here's what I'm going to study in med school. Then I'm at this practice and, you know, at 35 and I have two kids and you you can't help but feel that you're supposed to have that plan. And you feel like, oh my gosh, I, I don't have a plan. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, and you feel like you're flying behind. And then I think sometimes we rush to these decisions uh, before we really know. And I, I think I think it's great. I, I think you're right. To not know the answers and feel like you're in this exploratory phase phase is very liberating. I think that's I think that's probably great advice for, for all students, even the ones who think they have a plan, because sometimes those students who realize later on, I chose my plan too early. Right. And I think sometimes it's those students that actually have the most anxiety about things because they come in and say, you know, a lot of our students now are coming in saying, I'm going to be a neurologist. Not that I'm going to go to medical school. I'm going to be a neurologist. I mean, they already have their specialty picked out. And then suddenly one day they just figure out that that's not really what they want. That's not what their passion is. And it can be devastating, right? It can be so devastating to those students and they just feel lost. And so sometimes it's easier for the students who don't have direction because everything is open to them. But, you know, and I often say sometimes it's easier to figure out what you don't want to do than what you do want to do. So just start marking off those things you don't want to do. And eventually what you do want to do will will surface. So. I think that's so true. That's great advice for, I think, especially young people when they're starting out, doing something that you realize you don't like is still really valuable information. Like that's not a failure. That's, you've just learned something really important. So I think that's, that's a great thing for students to keep in mind. Like, oh, I thought I would like that class. I hated it. That's not what I'm going to do. It's like, great. You really learned something really important. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Well, so you obviously went on to study biology. You became passionate about that. How did you discover that? What drew you to biology? Right. So that's kind of one of those cases where I thought I wanted to do something and then I ended up I didn't. So I thought I wanted to be a pharmacist, ironically, when I was in fifth grade, simply because my mother's youngest brother, who was like 13 or 14 years younger than her, was a pharmacist. And one day he told her that he thought I was smart. 
And so I was like 10 years old and no one ever had said that they thought I was smart. And so I was going to be a pharmacist because that's very logical. And then I saw makes that. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, it does. Makes perfect sense. And then I saw that like when I went to the pharmacy, they just looked like they were counting pills. And I know Dean Melissa Hogan is going to kill me for saying that out loud. But um, that's what I saw as a 10 year old. And so I was like, oh, it looks a little boring. So then I was going to be a chemist. And I had my parents buy me, you know, the chemistry set because to be a chemist meant like you just mix stuff up and you set stuff on fire and like you blew stuff up. And that seems really exciting. And I went to high school and I was going to be a chemist, but you had to take biology first. And I had this amazing biology teacher, Mr. Overly. And he was the kind of biology teacher that would bounce off the wall and pretend he was a molecule and he made up songs about photosynthesis <laughs> and would play, you know, he'd play the piano and sing them. Yeah. And he just was so excited every day about biology. It was contagious. And the next year I took chemistry and I also had a great chemistry teacher and we blew things up sometimes very unintentionally <laughs> in class, but it just, it just wasn't that exciting. And, um, I just got so excited about biology. I took an extra year of biology. They made up a special biology class for me and a couple friends to take. And I actually, and this also outs me as, as the nerd or the geek that I was, I applied for a biology camp that the state of Illinois was doing at U of I my junior year. And I got accepted. There was 20 of us in the state of Illinois that were accepted to this you know, biology 2000, because I'm quite, you know, that was like a big thing then camp. And I went for two weeks to this biology camp at U of I. And it was just amazing because at a small town, we didn't have any like big biology equipment. We just did regular, you know, science and to just be exposed to everything that they were doing at U of I at that time. Then it was just like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. This is exactly what I want to do. And and then that's how I ended up a biologist. That's pretty fantastic, the power of teaching. And I know you've got you've done a lot of research. So what drew once you're in biology, how did you figure out tell us a little about the research you're kind of most excited to have done and how you get interested in it, how you find your your kind of area to explore? So I did I did some research as an undergrad at at St. Francis, and I actually did um, research in chemistry, so I could never quite get a, totally away from <laughs> chemistry. And I had a great mentor there as well, um, Dr. Celine Diab, and uh, we were studying the effects of the black walnut tree on growth of other plants, and specifically tomatoes and things of that nature. So I did some synthesis and characterization there. But when it came to picking a graduate school, I just was looking for a program that had, you know, just interesting projects that were happening there. And I settled on Rosalind Franklin University simply because there was multiple labs there that seemed interesting. People were doing cancer research. People were doing neurology. Transgenic mice at the time was very cutting edge and people were doing that. And I really felt like there were multiple labs that I could do research at. I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. So I went there and the program I entered was pharmacology and molecular biology. I couldn't get away from pharmacology either, <laughs> right? So these themes just kept popping up. 
And I went there and I thought I knew exactly what I wanted to do again. I thought I was going to go into this cancer research lab. And I ended up doing research in fission yeast, studying RNA processing. RNA's big now, right? I mean, this is all about RNA. Right. Now it's all about <laughs> RNA. I was way ahead of the, the, you know, of the curve there. But again, it's one of those things where you think you go into it. I was for sure I was going to go into this one lab. And I did my last rotation in this yeast lab. And I was like, oh, this is, this is going to be, this is what I want to do. And that worked out really well for me. But when I finished my PhD, I then decided I want to do something that doesn't put people to sleep when you try to talk about it. You know, when you're talking about RNA splicing and fission, people's eyes glaze over. I wanted to do something that was a little bit more clinically relevant. Um, So I started a postdoc at the University of Illinois, Chicago, doing work in corneal disease and also glaucoma. And I really enjoyed my work with glaucoma. We did some really great research with Beatrice Yu with my mentor there. And uh, we did some characterization of a molecule called myosilin and its role in the risk of glaucoma. And that was the research that I've been probably the most proud of. And that's the research I brought when I came to Roosevelt. Students liked that research because it seemed to be relevant. A lot of students have family members that have had glaucoma. It's very prevalent in the African-American population. And so a lot of our students can relate to that. But I also have always had a fascination with cancer. And I teach a class, or I used to teach a class, now that I'm a dean, I don't get to do those, but um, (laughs) I used to teach a class on cancer biology. And a lot of students wanted to do cancer research. And so then I also opened up a project on cancer research and looking at gene regulation and expression in cancer. And for myself, when I'm working with students and, you know, wanting to teach methods to students and wanting to get students involved in research, it's more about just kind of teaching them the skills and getting them excited about research. It's not necessarily about curing glaucoma or cancer Mm -hmm. or doing anything that's going to, you know, end up with their name in science or something like that. But it's just about giving them that excitement about discovering something that I really enjoyed. And, you know, a place at Roosevelt, you can do that. If you're at an R1 institution, you have to be really concerned about getting grants and moving forward. But at a place like Roosevelt, you can still just like be excited about it and get other people excited about it and help them use it as a stepping stone to to go on and and do other research and go to graduate school or go, you know, work at another university or company. And and I guess that's what keeps me excited about research. I think I went a little off topic. No, I'm going a little off topic. So I feel like I always read these articles where it seems like we're on the cusp of kind of incredible medical breakthroughs, right? We're using CRISPR, gene editing technology, whatever, where you feel like, oh my gosh, they're going to cure everything and people are going to live to 200 and blah, blah, blah. And I know that's always getting pushed out of the future a second ever, but I'm curious, you as a scientist, right? What is, I'm going to actually put on your futurology hat here. What is your guess about, let's say in the next 10 to 20 years, what kind of major medical breakthrough can we hope for, look forward to that people may not know about yet? Of course, you're asking me this the the week that all the Nobel Prizes are being um, (laughs) awarded to. 
I didn't get my Nobel call again this year, but I'll keep my fingers crossed for next year. Who knows? Who knows, right? <laughs> still, there's still calls coming this week. Um, wow. You know, I think you're going to stump me on this one. I, I'm not really sure. I have a feeling that there's going to be breakthroughs in in areas that have to do with the brain. Hmm. I think that we haven't seen, I mean, we're really still unlocking so much that has to do with the brain. There's been a lot of work that's been looking into the plasticity of the brain. We always thought like, Oh, in the central nervous system, we can't regenerate neurons. It's impossible. And we're learning that there's a lot more plasticity there than we knew. So I think there's going to be a lot of breakthroughs in increasing the regeneration of the brain and helping with brain injuries. I don't know why, but that's kind of what I think. That would be fantastic. That would be very cool. I hope you're right about that. I hope so too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have uh, taught and been involved with a number of courses that have fascinating titles. And I had a resistor to ask you about too many of them, but there are a couple I would like to talk to you about. I know one, you said you were involved in a study abroad courses that took place in Tanzania and in Belize. And I'm curious what that study abroad experience is like and maybe uh, any interesting stories you have from that for your time there. Yes, I've been really lucky because I haven't had to teach the lectures on the courses. I've always, <laughs> I've always got to go along as the second faculty chaperone. And my colleagues have actually taught the courses. So I've been to Belize once, um, and that was with Dr. Paul Gross, who was a visiting faculty with us at the time. And then I've been able to go to Tanzania on four different occasions with Dr. Norbert Cadero. And he's one of our conservational, he's our conservational biologist, and he's just amazing. And that course is transformative. And since I've been there four times, I'll talk about that one. Um, He, he not only, he's a native of Tanzania and he's been working in the nature preserve in Amani there for more than two decades. And the course that he takes the students on, part of it is looking at different ecosystems. And, you know, we go through the Serengeti and we go to other places, uh, you know, other national parks in Tanzania. And it's just really amazing to see um, all these different ecosystems. But then students spend uh, more than half of the time that we're there in the Amani Nature Conserve, which is in the eastern mountains in Tanzania. And it's in the rainforest. And they spend time doing some investigations in the rainforest. And then they also spend time doing reforestation with um, villagers, right? So I think they've planted, I don't, I want to say upwards of more than 8,000 trees in the, between the four years that we've been there to increase reforestation in the area and to help the, the villagers maintain their livelihood. And I think that's, truly amazing and it's really been transformative not only for myself but for the students and just to see over the course of two weeks just the way their minds work and the understanding of the ecosystem and biodiversity and everything I mean it's just an amazing experience I I I can't even explain it and you know in 2020 we were supposed to go back and obviously we couldn't and we can't go back in 2022 either and I think it's really a shame because the students really are missing out on it. Just a great opportunity. Hmm. That sounds like an amazing experience. Yeah, it is. 
So you've also taught a course on biology of aging, which I'm quite fascinated by the title. I feel like aging is not something we deal with well as a society. So I'm curious, uh, do you have any advice for us as individuals or society, uh, or as a society about dealing with uh, aging? Yes, stay off social media. Right. So if we've learned anything this week is, you know, Facebook can manipulate you, right? I think the effects of of social media are really bad on our mental health. But if if we think, so I'll be a little serious. So physically, I think that we actually tend to do things now that aren't really very healthy for us in, in the physiological sense, right? So we eat a lot of processed foods and I'm like the number one offender of this. You know, we eat processed foods, which increase our oxidants. And so that's going to have us age more quickly. We live very sedentary lifestyles, which obviously does not help the aging process. And then the other thing is our lifestyles are just more stressful, right? So we have more stress. We also see increased trauma, especially in children. And there are studies out there that show that that increased stress or increased trauma, increased levels of cortisol, that they actually decrease what is called our telomeres. And our telomeres are on the end of our chromosomes. And they're kind of like our, our cell division clock. And so the shorter your telomeres get, the, the, the decreased number of times your cells will divide. And so it's like your cellular aging. And so if you are having increased stress or trauma, your cells are going to age quicker, which means that you are going to age quicker. And so all these things we do in our, our everyday life are actually increasing the aging process. So, and we also take in more calories. We have increased obesity, which also increases aging. So I think one thing, you know, besides just our obsession with the outerness of our beauty, you know, aging and beauty and getting Botox and, you know, facelifts and things like that. I mean, I think we have to really, if we really want to slow down the aging process physically um, or physiologically, then we need to think about our lifestyle and, you know, what we put in our bodies and, and think about slowing down and trying to decrease stress in our life. And I, you know, I am not the person to say that because I have a lot of stress and I don't eat right, but I do, I I do exercise. So at least I'm trying to do that right. But I mean, that's something that people should think about if they're really interested in, in, in trying to slow down the aging process. That's one way to do it. That all sounds very wise. I'm disappointed, of course. I was hoping for the magic pill or the uh, <laughs> one thing that would solve all that. Your, your good, good, sensible habits over the long term. Uh, not, not quite as easy, but uh, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yes. Well, one thing I did, did in my class was the students had a project where there was a group project where I had them all market um, an anti-aging project product <laughs> and they would come up with like a flyer, but they would have to use like scientific theories to do it. But they had great products, like sometimes it'd be like a nano chip or a pill. (laughs) So, I mean, I also tried to get them to come up with the perfect pill, but it never quite worked. Maybe someday. Maybe, maybe. So uh, you are going to be moderating a panel that's focused on public health, particularly in the wake of the pandemic. I guess we're not totally in the wake of it. We're still in the midst of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. um, What has the recent history of COVID taught us about how we can improve uh, public health in this country and around the world? Well, you know, one thing I think we first should talk about is what public health did right. 
right? So public health was the first to raise the alarm, right? So they started to disseminate the information um, the best that they could when it became available. They made us aware of what they thought would be the worst case scenarios. And sometimes they weren't even the worst case scenarios. They were the medium <laughs> case scenarios. But I, I think one thing that we learned is that if we don't have enough support of public health, we're in trouble, right? Mm. If, there, if, if, if public health is trying to give out a specific message and that message isn't supported by the government, that becomes a big problem. And also, if there's not enough funding for public health for them to have the resources they need, right? If they don't have the resources to hire contract tra contact tracers, if they don't have the resources to get the message out and disseminate that, if they don't have the support not only of the federal government, but local government, that there's going to be a big problem. And that was really magnified in, in this crisis, and it continues to be an issue. I think that if we even now look at the states that are not following public health guidelines, we can see the big differences between those that are. So those that are still ignoring what public health is telling them, we see that they have low vaccination rates. They have very high infection rates. They have high hospitalization rates and they still have high death rates. Mm -hmm. And public health is giving them the same message that they're giving other states. And, you know, as a scientist, it's very interesting to me because it's like you have a control group and you have an experimental group all at once. As a person, it's, it's, it saddens me. But I think that for a long time, people maybe have felt like public health wasn't really a, like the public health department or public health itself wasn't really that big of a deal. It didn't really affect them. It was for, you know, lead paint or it was for other things. And I think it really was, has been magnified how important it is. Last weekend or, or last Friday, we had the alumni awards at the university and our college's alumni award went to Dr. Joanne Jose. And she is an infectious disease physician and in well has a degree in public health and formerly taught at the Tulane um, University of Medicine in public health. And we were kind of talking, you know, she's like, oh, both of my degrees are in such high demand right now. <laughs> and we were talking about how about five or six years ago, she was at an infectious disease meeting with a bunch of people from public health. And they were all sitting around talking about what they thought the next big pandemic was going to be, right? And there were people there with Ebola and other people that were E. coli specialists. And they were all kind of, you know, taking a bet on what was going to be the next emerging epidemic and pandemic. And, you know, one person was there from respiratory and he said, it's going to be a respiratory virus because it's going to be something that can pass very quickly, that's airbound, that, you know, can, can be passed, you know, with global travel and things like that. And we were talking about how so many people have been saying, well, nobody could have predicted this. Nobody could have predicted this pandemic. And the reality is people in public health have been predicting this pandemic mm. for a while. And it's just that they weren't allowed to talk about the predictions because I guess you don't really want to talk about predicting stuff, but 
the people in the know and the people who study this realize what could happen. But when it did happen, I think their hands were tied a little bit by, mm. especially in the United States, by our government. And so that's something that we have to think about going forward because it won't be the last time we have a pandemic. Hopefully I think that's right. You think about for a while. Some of those other ones that have happened like SARS or whatever, where we, we sort of dodged the bullet and never became a full-blown pandemic. And our response to that was not, oh, we need to get our house in order and really be ready for the next one. It was like, oh, see, we can handle this. It's no problem whatsoever. Nothing to see here. Right. Yeah. It was, the virus was just, you know, it's like, oh, didn't quite figure it all the way out yet. Yeah. We'll try again, you know, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. Very interesting. Well, so uh, let me give you uh, the magic power right now where you can rate, you can, you have your magic wand. You don't have to worry about any of the uh, real world situations. What would you change about public health or about the healthcare system in general if you could immediately wave your magic wand, wand to make one change? Okay. If I were to ma- wave my magic wand and make one change, we would have universal healthcare. Hmm. I think that, you know, that is the thing that we in the United States, need to have, I think, you know, that basically just means that all people and communities receive the quality healthcare services they need without financial hardship. Um, you know, the UN has been asking for this. In 2019, they had a meeting in New York asking for countries to, you know, to pledge that they would have universal healthcare by 2030. I think for us to really say that we're a developed country, we need to have universal health care. I mean, a lot of people talk about that we can't afford to have it, that uh, economically it will break us. But really, you know, if you look at the key barriers to universal health care, so things like poor infrastructure, availability of basic amenities and out-of-pocket payments, you know, low access, all those barriers have solutions. And those solutions really will help to to stimulate the economy, right? And so saying that the economy or cost is really prohibitive isn't isn't really the truth of the matter. Studies have shown that universal health care is really a catalyst for socioeconomic development, and it's a key contributor to equity, social justice, and inclusive economic growth. And so, I mean, universal health care really is what delivers on human rights to health as well as a broader human rights agenda. And we all know that Eleanor Roosevelt served um, as the first chairperson of the Commission of Human Rights, and she played a very instrumental role in drafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so I think, you know, as a faculty member and dean at, at Roosevelt University, I really think that Eleanor would be behind universal health care and I think it just makes sense that, you know, that the United States as such a leader in so many other realms would would have universal health care, that we wouldn't deny anybody access to or the the right for their own health. I hope the magic wand I gave you has power. That'd be fantastic. That would be fantastic. I I doubt it, but it would be really fantastic. All right, I have one very serious question for you before yeah. you go. I know yeah. you're a Chicago Bears fan, and I'm a long-suffering Chicago Bears fan. It's a two-parter. One, is Justin Fields the savior we've all been hoping for? And two, are you currently optimistic or pessimistic about the Bears? 
okay, Justin Fields can be the savior if a couple of things happen. And some of this is going to be controversial. Number one, we need a better O-line. <laughs> and, I, you know, we drafted somebody who needed back surgery. I won't get into all of that. My son is an offensive lineman in college, so I'm all for the O-line. They work hard. <laughs> We're going to get there. I think he needs a different head coach to be successful. And <laughs> I also feel that he needs to sit on the bench more this year. That's Some more time to learn. Yes. Yes. That's it's, no, it's very, I, I agree. I think throwing quarterbacks in their first year in the pros, it is even Peyton Manning had a terrible first year when he started that way. It is a brutally tough way to be introduced to the NFL. Right. Am I optimistic or pessimistic? I am always optimistic when it comes to the bears. <laughs> I always believe that we can do anything I might cry when I watch the Bears game. I might use words that we won't use on the podcast, but I always <laughs> believe in them. Not this week, because we had a good win this week. Even though it was the Lions, we're going to take it. But the week before last, my son, who's 25, sent me a text that said, I curse you that you birthed me into this fandom. <laughs> And that's the way it happens, does it? We get birthed into the fandom, but he can't leave. He know. knows he can't leave. And this, this week he sent me a text. He's like, wow, we look good this week. So we always, we, you know, we always, we always come back. And, and I believe that we're going to be good one of these years. I believe it. Put it someday. 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 It'll be 1985 again someday. And well, I was going to say, I, to remember, you know, if I have you, if, if we do up another podcast together at some point, I'm going to have you. We'll see if we can do all. I, I used to know them all at one point. We'll see if we can do the whole song, the Super Bowl shuffle. I actually did that. In the glory days. I actually did that as part of a talent show when I was in high school. I'm ready. I've got. To so you're it. ready. OK, good. Yep. So that'll be if we do this again, Super Bowl shuffle. That's how we're going to kick it off. It sounds great. <laughs> I would enjoy that very much. <laughs> It has been a pleasure chatting today with Dean Wentz-Hunter. If you want to listen to this or any other podcast, you can go to roosevelt.edu backslash podcast. And please attend this year's American Dream Reconsidered Conference from November 1st to November 4th. If you'd like to see a full schedule of the events, go to roosevelt.edu backslash American Dream. Thank you very much, Dr. Free. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.